All right, Ecclesiastes 7, we pick up here. We've uh, mentioned, uh, we've been here the last uh, two Sundays, and uh, we have uh, mentioned the, the idea that uh, Ecclesiastes 7 sort of continues a, a theme um, from Ecclesiastes chapter 6, which is uh, uh, this idea of perspective, ha- having a a godly or a biblical perspective about the life that we live in this fallen world. Uh, we looked at in chapter 6 uh, specifically at the, uh, this issue of materialism and, and wealth and the perspective that we sometimes have about those things uh, and looked at uh, essentially Solomon dispels uh, there in, uh, in chapter 6 some of the myths about uh, prosperity and wealth and abundance because sometimes we, again, we have a, a very secular perspective about those things and, and money and riches can certainly be uh, very deceiving uh, in our lives. And so we, we, looked, at, we looked at that, uh, sort of a godly perspective on, on prosperity. Uh, and then we're now into chapter 7 where he sort of looks at this sort of a, a, a perspective, looking at this from a kind of a different angle and addressing this issue of adversity uh, or affliction and, and hardship and, and basically says that on one hand, uh, when we think about prosperity and riches, we sometimes are deceived into thinking that that's the best thing for us uh, or even in some cases that, that material blessing is a sign or an indication that we're walking with God or that we're pleasing God or faithful he sort of flips that, talks about this issue in chapter 7 of adversity and affliction and says we can also be deceived when we think about adversity and we can convince ourselves that if we're experiencing affliction or adversity that, uh, that we're not walking with God or that we're somehow displeasing God uh, or the fact that uh, adversity or affliction is necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes we just assume that Affliction is bad for us. And so we get these things sort of turned around. And so he's giving us what we might call a godly perspective on these, these issues, these things that we, we face and deal with uh, in life, um, this, this side of, of heaven. So he employs this term. We mentioned uh, the Hebrew word for good in chapter 7, especially in the first uh, half of this chapter but uses it in a sort of comparative sense. So he, uh, the, the concept here is that certain things are better than other things. And the things that are being described as good in chapter 7 are being compared to the things that we sometimes believe to be good for us, but not necessarily. And so he makes these sort of proverbial statements about, you know, certain things are, are better than, than other things. Uh, things that we might uh, think are good for us, but but may not be as good for us as we as we perceive. So we asked this question even last week: what what is on the list of good things in life? Uh, when you think about pleasure and you think about enjoyment uh, and relaxation, what are some of those things that would make your list of enjoyable and pleasurable things? Uh, and whether it's 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 family or uh, certain relationships in your life or certain material things, uh, vacations and Starbucks, and it could be uh, Haagen-Dazs uh, 
uh, gelato. You know, we threw out a lot of different things, and we think about good things in life. Uh, but the question that we're really wrestling with is a question that Solomon asks at the end of chapter 6. If you'll notice there in verse 12, he poses this question, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his feudal life? And, and the implied answer is nobody but God. Only God truly knows what is good for us in life. We, we have a list of things that we would say are, that we believe to be good, um, but sometimes we don't really understand what is good for us. And so our list of good things and the list of good things that God would say are good for us, those things don't always match up and line up. And, and so uh, the reason for that is in most cases because our list of good things revolves around our comfort. I mean, you can when you think of uh, ice cream and, and Starbucks and, and ocean breezes and family, you thinking things about things that give you comfort, <laughs> and and God is not always about that. In fact, He is always about Christ likeness and developing in our lives godly matur- maturity and spiritual growth. So this is what Ecclesiastes is all about. It's about it's about helping us to have. A, a godly perspective of life as we experience it. And so he gives us, we've sort of uh, tried to outline this section from verses 1 to 14, and we've just, uh, as a way of kind of walking through these verses, we've said here that Solomon gives to us six perspectives that are good for a man, six perspectives that are good for a woman, six perspectives that are good for a young person. So for, for all of us, there's a perspective that we should have about certain things in life uh, very different from the way that the world thinks and very different from the way that the world sees things, but clearly perspectives that, uh, in answer to this question in chapter 6, things that are good for us. So we looked at these. Uh, We're halfway through our list. Uh, We mentioned first that it is good for you or it is good for anyone to have a right perspective about death and its certainty. Uh, Verse 1, a good name is better than good ointment. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure." So he says it's good for a person to have a, a, a right perspective of, of death. Uh, death is, is uh, certain. Uh, we talked about the, the, the importance of having a good name, a good reputation that will certainly outlast the, any material possessions and abundance that we have. It will outlast uh, the, the perfumes, if you will, the things that will, in, in Solomon's day, that they would have used to prepare a body for burial. Uh, some sort of external outward fragrance that would cover up the rottenness, uh, but a fragrance and a a smell that would quickly dissipate. He's saying, listen, it's much better to have a good name because a good name is is enduring, it is uh, attractive, it is influential, and yet we don't always think about the importance of our name and reputation and, and the legacy that we will leave behind. 
Uh, he, all, he goes on and says in the end of verse 1, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And we just sort of married that with this concept of a good name and reputation and said that this is true, this is better, the day of one's death is better because if our life has been lived well, then our name and our reputation at that point is sealed um, uh, the, the reputation of a person, if you will, is settled at the day of their death. And when a person, a man or a woman, has lived uh, so as to earn a good reputation, the day of his or her death can be a time of honor. Uh, then he goes on in verse 2 and talks about this house, the house of mourning. He's basically describing here uh, a funeral and makes the, makes the statement that uh, it's better for us to attend a funeral, essentially, than to go to a party, to go to a house of feasting, and that is because we do a lot more sober thinking at, at funerals. The death causes us to think seriously about life. It causes us to deal with not the trivial things in life that distract us, um, but to deal with, with lasting realities. Verse 3, he says, sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy, and so sorrow can do, do more good for, for the heart than laughter can. Uh, he says a sad face can open up the heart. It can, it can lead to ultimate uh, satisfaction and, and gladness. Uh, it can also lead to wisdom because he says in verse 4, the mind of the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. So in all of, these, all of these verses, it's as if Solomon is asking, how can you live wisely in a Genesis 3 world if you don't think rightly about death? You, you, you have to come to terms with, with death and, and eternity. And the obvious question is, is it wise to spend your entire life living as if the one thing that you know for sure will happen won't? Um, so he brings us face to face with this issue of death and says, Listen, what is good for you? We may do a lot of things in life, and people all around us every day, every week are doing things to distract from having to face that reality, filling their lives with all kinds of, of things that will divert their attention from their, that the reality of having to face God and uh, to face death. But Solomon says it would be foolish to do that, that, that the wise thing would be to have a realistic and a truly Christian perspective about death and uh, its certainty. The second thing we mentioned is that it's good for a person, it's good for you and I to have a right perspective about the value of painful wisdom. Uh, Verse 5, he says, It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is, is futility. So Solomon says, don't be deceived by the noise. Don't be deceived by the praise of fools. Don't be drawn, drawn to that kind of thing. Uh, while at the same time, uh, as we do occasionally get defensive when we are challenged or when we are rebuked uh, and reproved by uh, wise counselors. He says, correction is a loving thing. That, that's a, that is a biblical perspective for us to have, that it's a, it's a loving thing, it is a sanctifying grace in our lives as believers to have people at times correct us, uh, to re- reprove us, and to rebuke us. 
So the rebuke of a wise friend, uh, the, the counsel of someone coming alongside of us at times and pointing out our foolishness, uh, opening up the scriptures to us, exposing our ungodliness, our, our unbiblical ways of thinking and living, that that is sometimes painful, and yet it is what's good for a man. So it's, it's good for us that we, that we experience that at times. And again, the world doesn't share that uh, opinion. The world doesn't think that that's a good thing. And we, again, get caught up in that sometimes and, 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 and not only run from reproof, but so sort of structure our lives and our relationships as to sort of shield and protect us from, from that kind of correction. But it's good for us. So it's good for us to have a right perspective about the value uh, and the importance of uh, painful wisdom and correction. Uh, Number three, uh, beginning in verse seven, he says, It is good for a person or for us to have a right perspective about self-restraint. He says in verse seven, For oppression makes a wise man mad and, and, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Uh, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. And so we have this situation, a situation uh, of, uh, where there's oppression. Someone is abusing their authority and power. We, we see it, and it's, it's infuriating to us. It's frustrating to us. Uh, he says here that it makes a wise man mad, and not in the sense of being angry, but in the sense of being in, insane or in, in, uh, to being sort of like fr- the sense of frustration in that we want to settle the injustice. And so what happens is we see injustices and we're tempted to make those things right immediately, to, to, to want to step in and to immediately set something right when we're not going to be able to always do that. It's not certainly not wise to always do that, uh, to, to, to step in and to think that we can somehow uh, settle accounts immediately. Uh, m- most often that turns into re- revengeful attitudes and, and again, self, self-righteous attitudes, uh, thinking that we have the knowledge and the wisdom and the authority to always step in and, and make wrongs right. Uh, we have to be on guard against that. Uh, we also have a situation where a person is tempted by greed, tempted to accept a bribe. And he says here, a bribe corrupts the heart. Again, it's, in a way, it's, a sh- it's another shortcut. So this sort of shortcut of not wanting to wait on God to bring justice, but thinking that we should step in immediately and do that for him. And in this sense, instead of waiting for God to provide, we accept the bribe Again, it's sort of a way of, of shortcutting that process. Uh, and then we have a situation where we're tempted to be impatient and angry. And, and so the common thread that, that I think kind of ties these verses together is the solution to the sin that's being done or explained to us in these verses. And the solution in every case is self-restraint. The solution is, is, is patience. The solution is self-control in, in contrast to what we feel in the moment, right? Because in the moment, what we think is good for us is to not have self-restraint and control. We think what's good for us is to, to let these things out, right? To vent our frustration, to set wrongs right, to take the shortcuts. And yet, 
wisdom would say that a fool, as in Proverbs 29, 11, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. So it's, it's, it's biblical wisdom when we exercise restraint in our lives. In fact, he says in verse 8, you could translate this, length of spirit is better than height of spirit. So this sense of length of spirit, we, we, we would use the, the terminology long-suffering. So it's better for your spirit to be long and just to suffer in these things and to be patient and to be humble than to have a high spirit, which is a description in Scripture of, of ha- its haughtiness, basically arrogance and pride. So it's better to be patient than it is to be filled with pride. It's better to have humility uh, in our lives. Uh, the grace of wisdom doesn't fight pride with pride, and the grace of wisdom doesn't fight anger with anger, and yet we sometimes pick up those instruments, right? And though we see the foolishness, we see the anger, and yet we come back at it using really getting pulled into it and, and, and being foolish ourselves. We're, we get caught up, if you will, in the folly. So we see the foolishness, but our, sometimes our response, rather than self-restraint, is to actually participate and to be foolish and to engage people at that, uh, on that level. So we finished that up, and then this morning we just want to walk through these other three things that Solomon says are good for us. So number four, uh, it is good for a person to have a right perspective about contentment with the present. Contentment with the present. Verse 10. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Or you could say, it's not wise to ask or pose this question. <laughs> so the person that, that asks this kind of question about com- comparing the former days with the present, sort of wishing that, we could go back, for sort of wishing that things were the way they used to be. That's actually a foolish concept, foolish idea. So, so Solomon, the, the kind of foolishness, foolishness that Solomon is addressing in this verse is, is that habit that we some, sometimes have of dwelling on what we might call the good old past, the good old past, even if the good old days in our minds were just last week. So it doesn't have to be something from five years ago or from 30 years ago. This could be just a week ago or a month ago, uh, but we, we, we get caught up in thinking about the way things were. Uh, it's been said that the good old days are the combination of a bad memory and a good imagination, right? So uh, we were, Kelly and I were having uh, dinner last night with a couple and, um, that, that are young, that four, four young ch- children. I think the oldest is, is eight. And they were asking us questions about our kids and, and, and sort of like when you look back, you know, on those younger years and they're, they're afraid they're going to make mistakes and they're going to, you know, their kids are going to just go completely off the, off the wall uh, because of their bad parenting and all these things. And so we were just saying, you know, as we think back about, about those, having our kids at those, you know, years ago that, you know, it's, we don't remember... <laughs> I mean, I don't rem- have a lot of specific things. I mean, I remember things about those years, but they're, they're, mo- they're mostly good things. I mean, I remember the good things. I don't remember every little, you know, petty argument or, or, or petty disappointment. And so you kind of look back, and it's like it was, that was, I, it, those, it was wonderful. 
I mean, it was wonderful. And they were like, oh, we're so thankful. You know, it's like maybe, maybe our kids won't remember all these things that are going on. There's this chaos in our lives right now. And, um, but that's what typically happens. Now, again, this isn't, you know, some of you might be saying, well, that's not. I mean, as I look back on my past, I want to just let, let it go and leave it behind. I don't want to go back there. And that could be true. Um, but I think we do, uh, again, it's, it is common to man for us to think back on uh, because we do have a bad memory and because we do have a, a very vivid imagination that we think a certain way about things, that the way things were, and especially when we're in the midst of, in the present day, in adversity, right? So this is the context here is that we're in the middle of adversity, and then we begin to compare that back to the good old days, William Barrick says this in his commentary. He says, Dreamers of bygone days reveal ignorance of history, false theology regarding the sinfulness of man and fallen condition of the world, blindness to opportunities existing in the present, and impatience regarding the future. They swing between a pessimistic outlook for the future and an unrealistic and nostalgic view of the past. So, We are to remember the past. We all have one, by the way. We all have a past. (laughs) We're we're not supposed to forget all of those things that happened in the past. We are to remember those things. We are to learn from those things. We are to be thankful uh, to God for those things. Uh, We are to prepare for the future. We are to be prudent and wise as we think ahead. And yet what Solomon is saying here is it's good for us to live today for the will of God. In, in the will of God today to be focused on the opportunities and responsibilities that are right here in front of us. Uh, the Victorian writer um, Hilaire Belloc penned pen these words, quote, While you are dreaming of the future or regretting the past, the present, which is all you have, slips from you and is gone. And, and, and I see it in counseling, um, you know, on a regular basis, people really missing out on the thing that God has for them right now because they're so worried about what's coming or they're so distracted and concerned about things that have, have, uh, have transpired or hoping that they could go back and somehow change those things and undo those things that they, they miss out on, on the here and the now. Uh, how many of you have seen Kung Fu Panda? Okay, don't be embarrassed. Master Ugwe, okay. There's some good lines in these movies, and I don't watch a lot of them, but... Um, Master Ugwe said, yesterday is history, t- tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift. That is why they call it the present. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of you whispered it. Yeah, you know, you know. So, uh, so, so rather than be content with where we are and focused on our God-given responsibilities today, we, we often think back to the way things used to be. Uh, and Solomon's point is, e- even if it was good, it's still gone, right? Even if it was good, it is gone, and it probably wasn't as good as you remember it, <laughs> right? Nostalgia has a way of distorting the past. Um, we sometimes forget about the problems that existed and remember only the good. And Solomon is warning us here that longing for yesterday's life situation and not accepting today's life situation this is one more thing under the sun that will bring vanity and frustration and meaninglessness to life. 
you will be experiencing on a regular basis the futility and meaninglessness of life if, you're, if you fall into this trap of dwelling on those things, trying to live in the past or to somehow get past. So what is good for a man? Again, nothing wrong with cherishing memories. But Solomon says what is good for us is to be content with where God has us right here, right now. And when a person begins to lust for the good old days, when they begin to turn over in their minds with uh, this sort of a resentful comparison between their past and their present, they have at that point stepped outside of the circle of God's wisdom into the sphere of foolishness at that point. So looking for the past is just as dangerous as worrying about the future. Solomon says, contentment with the present will replace both. Contentment with the present will replace both that desire for the past that is dangerous to us and that anxiety about the future that is just as, just as dangerous. So the best time is when? Right now. That's the point. The best time is right now. So we... We need a right perspective about contentment with the present. And it's interesting that if you think about Solomon's experience, right? I mean, think about the material possessions. Think about the track record of Solomon's life. Think about all the things that Solomon experienced. Think about all the chasing after these things. Think about the possibility, again, now on the backside of Solomon's life, Think about how easy it would be for Solomon to say, I wish things were the way they used to be, right? I mean, he could have very easily looked, easily looked back on periods of his life and said, if I could just redo that, if I could just hit control, alt, <laughs> sort of zap, erase all of that. But his wisdom is don't, don't get, that's foolish to think that way. <laughs> That's foolish to think that way. You have to rest in the sovereignty and the providence of God to know that what you have experienced in the past, if you look back and you think misery, bad, I'd love to just erase that and be, no, well, guess what? God could, have, God could have prevented what happened, right? It could be different, but it's not. And so you have to trust God with that. And then don't be tempted on the other side to, Think only good, remember only the good stuff, and then to somehow think that the adversity and the affliction that you're going through now in the present is not what's best for you. What you really need is you need to get back to that other thing. It's not the case. And it would have been very easy for Solomon to come to this point in his life and to not speak this, these words. And yet he's telling us it is good for us to have contentment right now, right where we are and where God has us. Okay, number five, it is good for us, it is good for you, it is good for every man and woman to have a right perspective about the value of wisdom over money, the value of wisdom over money. Wisdom is more valuable than money, and of course this is a principle that's uh, it's a common theme in Ecclesiastes and in, in, in Proverbs as well. Verse 11, wisdom along with an inheritance is good. And an advantage to those who see the sun, for wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives 
of its possessors. So here Solomon presents wealth and wisdom side by side, and he gives us uh, what we might say is a best-case scenario. <laughs> you get this massive inheritance. Okay? You get this hefty inheritance from your parents, and along with the inheritance and the material things, you also receive a truckload of wisdom to help you to manage the material things and to enjoy the material things. So that's sort of the best case scenario. You have material things, but you also have wisdom to know how to think rightly about those things and to manage those things and enjoy them the way that God intended. But Solomon says, if you have to take one over the other, if you have to choose, give up the money and hold on to the wisdom. If you have money, great, right? Because and we've already talked about money in several other passages already in the first six chapters. Money in and of itself is not evil, okay? It's just, it's just a tool. If you don't have much of it, that's okay too, right? No problem because money and contentment are not inseparable. So, so you, can have, you can have contentment without having a lot of material possessions and riches, okay? So not having those material things does not hinder your ability to be satisfied and content in what God has given and in God himself. So if you have it, great. If you don't have much of it, no problem. But understand this, wisdom trumps money. So he says here in verse 12, wisdom is a protection, and it's a a term that, it's actually a term that uh, could be translated as a shadow uh, in the sense that when we think of a shadow, we might think of something that's, that's, pat, that's sort of fleeting. Um, but in this context, it's really the concept, it's the idea of shade or of, of protection. So it's, it's, it's really the concept of a shelter. So wisdom is a shelter, which he says money is also a protection, right? Didn't he say that? Verse 12, for wisdom is protection just as money is protection. So we understand this about money, right? When we have money, our confidence, we get a confidence boost, right? I mean, when there is money in the bank and the bills are paid, I mean, on a very practical level, money is in some sense a shelter. It is a protection for us. But then we find this caution, right? We have wisdom coming, and we have statements like Proverbs 18.11 that says this, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own imagination. That is to say, the problem with money is that money, even though it at times is a protection, can give us a false sense of security, right? So it's a tool... It is a, a shelter in, in certain situations, but the danger of riches and material things is that we can very quickly, subtly in our hearts, we can transfer our trust and reliance to it, right? To where we're, we're hoping in it, we're trusting in it uh, more than we should. It's like, I thought about this, it's like, the, it's like the sunburn at the beach. I mean, I know you guys have never done this, but I've done it more than once in my lifetime. You go down to the beach, and it's overcast. And you think to yourself, I don't need sunscreen. I don't need sunscreen because the clouds are going to shield me from the sun, 
right? I mean, have you ever had this experience? Overcast day at the beach, and you're like a red as a lobster, right, that afternoon? That's, that's what he's saying happens with riches, is that we, we look at riches, and our tendency sometimes is to say, I'm safe. Riches will protect me, and, and riches will not. Riches will betray your trust. They, they will not provide that kind of protection and certainly cannot shield us on that day when we face God. In fact, Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Right? Righteousness. So wisdom is more valuable than money. You think about the prodigal son in Luke 15. What was the prodigal son's problem? Was it a lack of money or a lack of wisdom? <laughs> it's a lack of wisdom, right? He had, he had money, right? He took his inheritance early. He went and squandered all that. But what did he lack? He lacked wisdom. He, he lacked the, the, the knowledge and the wisdom to know how to, to handle it. And so he says, money without the ability to use it wisely and money without the ability to enjoy it rightly actually becomes a hindrance to wise and skillful living, not a help. On the other hand, the wise man that has no money can still honor God with diligent hands and a trusting heart. So even if you don't have the material things, you can still be diligent You can still work hard. You can still be thankful. You can still worship Christ in your heart without the material possessions. Again, completely foreign to the world around us, right? They're not saying, I would rather have wisdom than have money. (laughs) They're saying, no, I would rather have money because money will shield me. Money will protect me from from all kinds of of threats and all kinds of, of evil and wrongdoing. God says, no, don't, don't put your hope and trust there. Uh, if you have to choose one or the other, let go of the riches and cling tightly to wisdom. Number six, and the last one here, uh, it is good for a person to have a right perspective about submission to God's sovereignty. It is good for a person to have a right perspective about submission to God's sovereignty. Verse 13, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? So this issue of God's sovereignty, it's, it's not a new thing in Ecclesiastes. In fact, we, the repetition of this theme in Ecclesiastes may be a signal to us about how important it actually is. So the fact that it just keeps coming up and keeps coming up might be a, a, a signal to us about that this is something we often forget and, and something that is crucial for our our lives. In fact, you'll remember back in chapter 3, verse 14, he said, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. So God loves to be worshipped. Uh, he loves to be glorified for his authority, his power, his, his glory, his, his sovereignty. And one of the things that puts God's power on display is the fact that in Genesis 3, as a consequence of Adam's sin, God, uh, we might say God bent the eye beam of the universe, okay? And it has been out of true ever since. 
In fact, we could borrow Paul's terminology. He says this in Romans 8.20, For the creation was subjected to futility, to vanity, to meaninglessness. So Solomon's telling us here, only, listen, only God can straighten that out. I mean, God is the one that is a consequence of sin brought these things, and God is the only one that can unbend and can straighten out these things in the end. And it's not just on a big scale. It's not just on a sort of universal scale. That's clearly what the Romans 8 passage and other passages refer to when it's speaking of just creation in general and the, and the consequences of the curse on creation. But it's also, I think, directed at you specifically as, a, as an individual in verse 14, for instance, he, he says, and I think he's getting down to more of a personal level, he's saying, it's as if he's saying that when, when the road in front of you bends to the right, don't wish that you could bend it to the left. <laughs> Again, it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's right up against this concept of contentment. And I think what Solomon is saying is, listen, when... It's God is the one doing these things, and when he puts it in a certain trajectory and he bends it a certain way, don't wish that you in your life could do something else with it. Verse 14, he says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Uh, Derek Kidner calls this verse, Quote, a little classic on the right approach to good times and bad. So Solomon says here, God ordains both kinds of days. And he withholds knowledge about the future. So what does Solomon say to do in the day of prosperity? When that day or when that season comes of prosperity in your life as a believer, what should be your response in the day of prosperity? What does he say? Happiness. Be happy. <laughs> and there was a sense of, well, does God want us to be that way? I mean, it, it, does God want us to enjoy the good days, the prosperous days? Or does, is, it, is that Christian? Is, is it Christian for us to actually enjoy the days of prosperity? Yes. Yeah, Buddhism teaches the opposite. Yeah, yeah I mean, enjoy it. It's saying basically, be happy. I mean, it's, don't don't feel don't feel guilty about enjoying the days of prosperity. But just realize that that's probably not going to last. It's not going to be indefinite, right? And so, guard your expectations about what's coming, and, and about what God is intending or what He's doing. So, in the day of prosperity, He just says, "Be happy." Literally, He says, "In a good day, be in good." He uses the same word, tobah, be, in, uh, be in, a, in a good day, in a day of prosperity, of goodness. Be, in, be good. Be in good. Recognize its goodness and be thankful. Be, be happy. When, when the business is great and the money is coming in, when, when, when the kids are doing well, in school, when relationships are strong, when, when your team would just won the national championship, be happy. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with Mr. jumping up and down on the sofa. Did, did Alabama win, by the way? <laughs> he would slap me for even asking the question. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Enjoy God's blessings in the day of prosperity. Give thanks. But then what do you do in the day of adversity? He says, in the day of adversity or calamity, see, consider, look, perceive. Uh, when, when the relationships are going poorly instead of doing well, when, when, when the person stops communicating, when communication breaks down in the relationship, when the contract falls through in, in, at work, when the ends don't meet, consider what? That God is behind both kinds of seasons. That's what you need to consider. Is that God? It's God wasn't it with you in the day of blessing, and then now He's not with you in the day of adversity. He's in control of both, which is good news because that means that whatever God brings, He can remove when He's ready. Right? I mean, it, it, it wasn't beyond his authority and power that this thing came into your life. When the adversity comes, he's the one that is behind it. And so if that's true, then rejoice because that means he can, when he's ready, he can take it away. He can, he can deal with it. E- even if it's not resolved here in our lifetime, right? Whatever he brings here on earth, he can remove in heaven, right? And why does God not bring perpetual good and comfort and health and wealth and ease in our lives, but also calamity and adversity and sickness and poverty, so that in not knowing what will come tomorrow, you and I will remain dependent on him. That's why he brings both, so that we don't forget God, so that we don't stop praying, so that we don't stop seeking, so that we don't think for one minute that we can make it without God. So... Daily life under the sun is racked with pain, filled with injustice and mistreatment, poverty, sickness, uh, all kinds of adversity. But Solomon tells us here wisely that we need to admit our inabilities. We need to direct our thoughts in our hearts in God's direction. We can't fix most of what is broken we can't bend it back anyway. We can't, the, the crooked parts of the places, the people, the circumstances of life that we encounter every day, they're beyond our ability to repair. So the main, main task for us every day is to think about each thing that we, can, we experience in light of who God is and what God does. To pay attention and to recognize the moment and respond accordingly. If something goes well in your day, no matter how small, you celebrate over it. Uh, no more wondering if you can be happy about good things. No, no more needing to wait and, and pray to discover if it's okay with God, whether you smile or not. In the day of prosperity, he says, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, let, let, the, let those tough things of life sink in. Don't run from those things. Don't, don't use uh, cliches and, and, and God talk to, to, to pretend that these things don't exist. But consider, consider that no evil can ultimately win, uh, that, the, that the foulest thing will reveal something true about the nature of life and the nobler purposes that we were made for. Take time, the time, the time needed to grieve, to ask questions, to wrestle with these things, to work it out, 
to come to terms because this is a mystery and we need to stand on this truth that no matter what happens in our lives, God holds on to us and maintains his purposes for us. We cannot make the crooked thing straight. We cannot fix everything. In fact, we can't know everything. And Solomon doesn't attempt to answer what we cannot know. He focuses on what we do know, that both good things and bad things happen to us and that God is within the thing either way. So don't waste all of your time trying to control and preserve your life and figure everything out, sort of turning over constantly in your mind, trying to, to, to figure things out in order to hold everything together. Solomon says if you try to do that, if you expend all your energy, energy trying to resolve all these things and, and to understand what's coming and why it's coming, that too is like chasing after, after the wind. So don't be paralyzed by your choices. Choose wisely, but be confident that all of those things in your life, every minute of your prosperity as well as every glass shard of your adversity is held, governed, and seen through to you by God. So you think about what Solomon is saying. If you put all all 14 of these verses sort of together, you get asked the question this way, what shapes you the most? What shapes you the most? And what he tells us here is that pain can shape you. Funerals can shape you. Sorrow can shape you. Rebuke can shape you. Injustice and oppression can shape you. Adversity can shape you. And it's the kind of shaping that is internal. And it's the kind of thing that we need but that we don't always like. So we think that health and wealth are the best things. And we think sometimes that affliction and grief and correction are the worst things. But Solomon reminds us here that we need to have a biblical perspective. Samuel Rutherford, who lived during the time when the Scottish Christians were being persecuted by Bloody Mary of England, said this, quote, I have never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard strong saints say every significant advance I have ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep in him has come through suffering. Come through suffering. So a carefree life of ease is an empty and shallow life. Rutherford actually went on to he said this, that when he was cast into the cellars of affliction, he remembered the great king always kept his best wine there. Spurgeon said that those who, who, who dive in the sea of affliction bring up the most rare pearls. So trials are great teachers, right? Great teachers about life and their meaning, um, and yet many Christians seek to ensure that life is as easy as possible. And, and, and Solomon understood this because he had done the very same thing, only to realize later that it had robbed his life of meaning. So who knows what's good for us? Who knows what is coming next? Who knows what the results of our present choices will be? We aren't wise enough to know, right? We aren't wise enough to know what is good for us. But God is. We don't know our future, 
but God does, and we need to, to trust him. Some of you, have, uh, you know, are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata as a teenager. Um, I thought about this. As a teenager, what do you think was on Johnny's list of likes? I say, Johnny, wh- what is good in life? Well, she, we know that she enjoyed swimming. We know that she enjoyed horseback riding, hiking, tennis, those kinds of things. When she was 17, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and Bay into, into shallow waters. She broke her neck. Uh, from that point on, was a quadriplegic, uh, unable to move anything from her neck down. Certainly not good for a girl whose pleasure in life was horseback riding <laughs> and swimming and hiking and tennis. Being immobile and confined to a wheelchair for life were probably not on her list of good things in life. But over time, her her attitude was transformed, began to change. Uh, Her perspective, if you will, about her accident and her paralysis went through quite a a transformation to the extent that later in life, when when well-meaning charismatics would offer to pray for her, that she would, God would miraculously heal her and get her out of this wheelchair, she would, she would politely decline. <laughs> because what at first she considered to be bad was actually good. So she, she, she came to this place where she realized that even though this was not on my list of good things, God knows what's best for me. So much so that I appreciate you praying that, but honestly, I'm looking back over this and realizing this is what was best. And, and could, she could see how God was using this and giving her opportunities for ministry that she would have never had had she not gone through that, uh, that adversity. So we know what we like, but God knows what is good. Prosperity isn't always a good thing, and adversity isn't always a bad thing. Prosperity isn't always the obvious indication of God's favor, and suffering and adversity are not always or necessarily evils and not the inevitable signs of God's disfavor. They are a part of his plan. So may the Lord help us to have that perspective, right? It's as if Solomon's taking a list over here and saying, these are all the things that we think are better. A good fragrance, parties, laughter, humor, praise of fools, shortcuts, accepting a bribe, lashing out in anger, going back to the good old days, money, pleasure, and changing your past. But what's actually better for you is a good reputation, funerals, sorrow, correction and rebuke from the wise, patience, trusting God, humility and self-restraint, contentment in the present, wisdom, adversity, and accepting God's plan. That's really what's best for you. So may may we think about those things and keep those things in our hearts and minds even this week as we we go out and as we uh, desire to, to live for Christ and to honor Christ in our lives, may we keep this wisdom uh, in our hearts and put it into practice. Okay, folks, um, well, we're going to be in verse 15 and, and, and beyond next week. I encourage you to read ahead and look at that. It's, a, it's an interesting section, <laughs> verse 15, especially verse 16. Uh, it will... Uh, it'll get you thinking. Uh, maybe one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible. So uh, we'll 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 talk about it. Okay, try to try to interpret it faithfully and make make application. Okay, thanks for your time.